Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Dr. Jennifer Heiz. She has a brand new book out called Move the Body, Heal the Mind, Overcome Anxiety, Depression, and Dementia, and Improve Focus, Creativity, and Sleep. There's a lot to unpack in that subtitle. But the main point, the main title, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, is where we focus. Moving the body, not just for the benefit of the body, but also the mind. We talk a lot about exercise, mental and physical barriers to exercise, getting better sleep, being more creative, improving your focus, overcoming your anxiety, getting rid of depression, all through moving your body more. Simple, easy ways to incorporate that, make it a habit and make yourself healthier. This is something that I am working on currently and anticipating changing up my rhythms and routines as we are heading into the fall and winter. Things change every year when it comes from spring to summer to fall to winter in terms of sunlight and temperature and atmosphere, just the conditions outside that make it possible. So I'm already thinking ahead as to how to change that up. I think you might find this episode helpful in that regard as well. So I'll get out of the way and just say, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jennifer Heise. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Dr. Jennifer Heise. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this topic of health and wellness because anybody knows that when it comes to productivity, it really matters to improve your focus, your creativity, your sleep. Those are all topics that we've talked about before, even exercise and mental health. And again, I'm going to say sleep again because it's just that important. I'm curious. I know that you're a professor of I'm going to say it wrong. You say it. (laughs) Kinesiology. Yes. (laughs) Kinesiology. Did I say it right? Yes, you got it. (laughs) Perfect. So I know that this topic is, you know, on your mind. Could you describe a little bit for somebody, you know, like me who, one, mispronounces it, but two, maybe has heard the word, but isn't quite clear what the difference is between that and other similar positions. What does that title mean? Yeah, it's interesting because it's a relatively new title for me. I did my PhD in neuroscience and psychology and added the exercise sort of after the fact. So the research we do in my lab, it's called the NeuroFit Lab, is to study the effects of exercise on the brain to promote cognition, you know, focus, creativity, but also to promote mental health. And like you said, all of these things are critical for doing good work. Exactly. 
going through the book, I knew this, and I think a lot of people know this on a gut level, even like an instinctual level, and even from like a, a head level, they understand that movement, your book is called Move the Body, Heal the Mind, and that, again, you've got all these different pieces to it. There's just raw exercise, there's movement and motion and the way that mental health is connected to physical health, that by moving more, you actually sleep better, you think better, you feel better. Those three right there are huge when it comes to productivity, sleep so that you've got energy, thinking better, thinking clearly, making good decisions or quick decisions, being efficient, as well as feeling better. Because I think that's one of the very underrated things when it comes to productivity is that when you don't feel good, whether that's emotional, which we already kind of mentioned, or physically don't feel good, you know, you are unmotivated, you are lacking clarity of what the next step is. And even if you do, you're more prone to procrastination and losing focus and you're less creative. And so all of these things, like this is squarely in the wheelhouse of this podcast. So I'm so excited. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, lack of focus, lack of concentration is actually a symptom of depression and anxiety. So there is this like cognitive component there. And so you're right. Absolutely. Moving the body, it heals the mind and it makes you way more productive. Yeah. So I know that the role is somewhat new to you, but I'm curious, how did you get interested in this whole field and even the connection of movement with health and this progress towards, oh, I have to write this book. Yeah, well, actually, I say new, but like, I mean, we're talking about a decade ago, so <laughs> or maybe a bit more, but in newer in the journey of my education. So yeah, so it was in grad school, actually. So like I mentioned, I was studying the brain and psychology. So the fundamentals of neuroscience, how does the brain represent who we are as people? And it was really a very stressful time for me. I had to do a lot of focused work. It was long hours at the office. I wasn't moving much. I started to get really anxious, very stressed out. And I didn't quite understand what was going on. I went to the doctor. They recommended an antidepressant and I just didn't want to take it. Mostly because, you know, I felt like my symptoms were sort of mild. I should probably try other outlets first. And a friend recommended I try cycling. And much to my amazement, these bike rides that I started to go on just like soothed my mind. They quieted my mind and they gave me that mental clarity that I was seeking. And from that point forward, the profound effect it had on my own brain caused this shift in my research. So from that point forward, I started studying the effects of exercise on the brain. And that's when I opened the lab here way back now in 2013. Wow. Wow. Very cool. I'm curious for people, they're going to take your word for it that exercise and neuroscience are linked. But what's your, for lack of a better term, what's your elevator pitch to somebody when they ask you, what do you do? And you say what you do. And then they're like, okay, but what does that really mean? Why and how are the brain and the body connected when it comes to exercise and neuroscience? Yeah, they're really connected. And I think people forget about that because we're so stuck in our heads all the time that, it, that we've essentially like disconnected the two. And in fact, like the body and the mind have been disconnected from biomedical science and medicine for such a long time. But in fact, when we evolved, the brain and the body were in synchrony. They had to be. The brain actually expected the body to move at least moderately. And so this is actually dialed into things like 
the hypothalamus, which controls our hunger. It's expecting our body to move at least moderately. And so our hunger dial actually doesn't have a low setting. It has a moderate setting to match the expected activity. And so the brain and the body are so intrinsically linked. We used to have to move, hunt, gather our food. That involved active navigation. And so regions like the hippocampus, which is a main center for memory and learning, this brain region produces, when we move our body, we actually produce brand new brain cells within the hippocampus that help us remember more. And so I think because our modern day life it's so sedentary. We've effectively engineered out movement from our life that we've forgotten how important it is and actually how fundamental it is to the health of the brain. We all know that in order to be healthy, we should be moving. And for some of us, it is kind of a shock probably to hear about our hunger level or setting being, you know, the baseline is moderate. And we're like, no, that can't be right. But <laughs> they think, well, I'll just compensate by doing just a little bit more exercise. The thing is, is I think a lot of people like me have had a hard time exercising consistently. We know the why behind it. We've even experienced wins in this area where we've done it consistently. And then over time, it's come off the rails, whether it's, you know, we get hurt or we we travel or we we just don't have the routine set. Or even if we did, it seasonally changes for some reason. What are some of those biological as well as psychological barriers that Give us all those reasons in our head that make it hard to consistently exercise. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important point to make to let people know that, you know, it is hard to exercise. It's hard to make it a consistent routine in your life. And one of the reasons why is because, in fact, the brain is to blame. It essentially makes us lazy because it wants to conserve energy. And so this is another relic of our evolutionary past when, you know, we needed to hunt and gather food, expend a lot of energy doing that. And so when we weren't doing that, we had to conserve energy. And so when we're not moving for survival, the brain really sets us up to conserve. And so flash forward to now, we don't really need to move to survive, right? We can jump in the car and drive to the grocery store and the food is plenty, you know? So what's happened now is that the brain, when you say, okay, let's go for a jog, it sees that as like a voluntary exercise as an extravagant expense. And it, it will go out of its way to protest, you know, like, do we even have time to do this right now? Do you have the energy? <laughs> and it's just, it's relentless. And so this understanding that Right from the get-go, we have this inherent barrier working against our best intentions to be active. I think that's a, an important first step to acknowledge because when we acknowledge that there will be barriers, like inherent barriers, then we can start setting things in place to make it easier to overcome those. So we can't just assume exercising will be easy and once we start, it will be easy to maintain. No, it is actually very difficult. The second part related to the hard part of, of movement is that exercise is a stressor. It's a physical stressor. And the brain is really trying to keep the body in homeostasis, which is like the same. And stress pushes you outside of homeostasis temporarily. 
So the brain is actually resistant to stressful things, challenging things. And again, it's seeing exercise as this stressful, hard work that you would rather not do that because it wants to keep you here in homeostasis. Now, the problem is that in order to grow stronger, fitter, healthier, we need to challenge our bodies. We need to challenge our bodies with exercise. And we can do that in ways that are less scary for the brain. So we can work out at like a comfortably challenging intensity rather than going all out and trying to go like get fast results now. And so that's that's one strategy we can start to do to sort of make it a little bit easier to initiate movement and then keep it going. It sounds like another way possibly, and I know this has worked for me, in varying effect, depending upon what season of the year it is, for sure, is to kind of trick the brain into thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to go work out or exercise. I'm going to do something that is fun and enjoyable. It just also involves movement. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think there needs to be a reconceptualization of what exercise is, because for most people, they have tried and failed. And so now it has this like super negative connotation. It has this negative association with it that doesn't seem fun. And so you're right. Like, I mean, going to the beach and throwing around the frisbee or going for a walk or hike through the park. I mean, these can be really enjoyable things for a lot of people. And I think that when we start to think about movement for mental health, rather than trying to like lose weight or get stronger or get bigger muscles, you know, when we think about movement for mental health, we can start focusing on that enjoyment piece more than the performance piece per se, and making it more about like, this is self-care. This is, you know, this is my time to, you know, relax and enjoy being outside or moving with friends, for example. Yeah, a total sort of flip of how we view what exercise is meant to be for. And we all have recent experience with this, I think, specifically, especially from the mental health side of things, because we needed to, after quarantine or being isolated, that getting outside and just, I mean, I remember summer of 2020 thinking, oh, thank goodness that the weather is now nice enough to more easily just be outside and go for a walk you know, walk the dog. That was one of the things that like I would look forward to I know, I know. going outside, you know, and I had always been, of. I mean, when I was younger, I was out. I mean, like a lot of kids in the eighties, I was outside all day, every day, all summer. Yeah. And my parents didn't know where I was. And that's just the way it was. And, you know, had migrated into being a hermit inside and, you know, 2020 and, you know, summer's Prior to that, it was, yeah, get outside more. And I did, but that was the summer where it was just, no, it's a lifeline. Right. And that's it. Yeah. It just, it was like the way to see people. I mean, uh, you know, if you were socially isolating, you could actually like see other people. I got to know my neighbors really well, which was kind of a fun (laughs) add on. But yeah, it became so critical for mental health. And the research we did in the lab right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was just so heartbreaking, like not surprisingly, you know, depression, anxiety, stress were all up. Physical activity was down. People shifted why they wanted to be active. So 
instead of wanting to be active to look good, they wanted to be active to feel good. But what was challenging was that their mental health was getting in the way. So, you know, they were too stressed or anxious to exercise, which is a thing, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed psychologically, sometimes adding that extra exercise stress on top of that can be overwhelming. And likewise, they lack the motivation, which is a symptom of depression. And so when we are using movement for mental health or taking that approach, we need to approach it totally differently, like and focus on things like not performance, but consistency, you know, not intensity, but, you know, putting in the time, doing it every day, doing things you enjoy, it does totally change the way you view it. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, in the book, you even explain that exercise is almost an unknown option for the one in three, I believe, people who, who don't respond to antidepressants. So from your perspective, what's the science there in terms of how exercise can alleviate symptoms of things that antidepressants are for, like depression and anxiety? Yeah, so it's so fascinating and also just a little bit scary and disturbing that one in three people who are experiencing depressive symptoms, they will be prescribed antidepressants by their doctor, but not respond. So they'll take their medication and still feel really depressed. And the reason why is because depression isn't like a homogenous disorder. It has many different ways that you can develop a depressed mood. And the antidepressants 
target only one of those. They target low serotonin, which can be a problem for some people, but it's not a problem for everybody. Some people have a different form of depression that seems to be more related to inflammation. And these are the non-responders. They tend to have higher levels of systemic inflammation throughout the body. Now, you probably know inflammation. I mean, we've been hearing a lot about the immune system and inflammation related to this virus, but inflammation can also arise through this like sterile immunity. And what happens is there's no foreign virus or bacteria in our body, but it's chronic stress that started to damage the cells and launch an immune response to that. And so chronic stress can start damaging the cells, create an inflammatory response throughout the body that seeps into the brain and starts wreaking havoc on things like our mood, increasing anxiety levels and depressing our mood. So it's through this inflammatory pathway that seems to be causing depression in a subset of people. Though since the onset of the pandemic, I'm pretty sure this is the underlying cause for most of the increases, especially in people who haven't had a diagnosis before. Like in, I know a lot of people started to experience depressive symptoms for the first time that they've never experienced them before due to the stressfulness of this situation that we've kind of all been under for like two years plus now. So how is exercise so beneficial? Well, exercise is an anti-inflammatory. So initially when we work out, there is an immune response. So there's a a bit of a, a peak, a spike in inflammation. And that's just to sort of protect your body while you're pushing it outside of its homeostatic happy place. So there's a slight increase in inflammation. But once you stop exercising, what happens is that the muscles release these myokines, which essentially like they're the inflammatory cleanup crew. So they get rid of all that inflammation and then some so that over time with consistent exercise, then your body becomes less and less inflamed. And the research is so incredibly remarkable, showing that for people who have been on antidepressants and not responding, they've been depressed. When they enroll in a new exercise program, they see clinically meaningful reductions in their depressive symptoms that are on par with antidepressant drugs. So it is the medicine they need. It's providing them with significantly greater benefits to their depression that no drug had provided them to that point. That's amazing. I love that because I have different experiences personally, as well as with different relationships in my life that have had, you know, anxiety, depression, et cetera. And I've seen firsthand and experienced myself firsthand. The thing that helps me is physical activity. So I kind of, and and I've seen it in other people. So, and I mean, I'll say this, I always like to have a caveat there because some people do need their medication and it does work Mm -hmm. for them. It helps them. And when medications coupled with exercise as an add-on therapy, it actually does some pretty awesome things too. So it reduces some of the unpleasant side effects that come with the drug. And it also can reduce the dosage that they may need to take. And so I see it as a win-win. It really needs to be part of the conversation when we're talking about ways to support our mental health. We shouldn't just opt for a prescription. You know, it should be a conversation about lifestyle that includes 
of physical activity. Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking primarily about physical activity and movement, but the, you know, the metaphor here in my mind, or even, even a non-metaphorical application here is the way you're talking about it. It's, it's not from the traditional use of the word holistic, or at least I think the way people think of that word, maybe move over to the W-H-O-L-E sounding word of whole, where it's you address the entire person, the whole person. And it's not just about if you're having depression and anxiety, you should have medication. And if medication doesn't work, try exercise. It's no exercise and physical activity is part of it. Just like if you were talking to somebody and they were talking about your entire spectrum of life and all that you're involved with or doing health-wise, and they asked you questions about your diet and you're like, oh yeah, no, I drink a two liter of Mountain Dew a day and things like that. They're like, come on, there's obvious things that you're like doing to self-sabotage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's a really important point that I try to make the book not just about like it's obviously it's focused on the benefits of movement for the brain but i incorporate things like mindfulness and cbt like cognitive behavioral therapy within the book to show how they work together and combine together because you're right we're complex people you know organisms that work together as a whole that's that's by design and so yeah we can't just piecemeal treat you know, this part of us and expect the whole thing to be better. Well, jumping later into the book, later in the chapters of the book, I should say, one of the things that you talk about is exercises effects on sleep. And I know that, you know, people who are having depression or anxiety, one of the things that goes out the window often with that is sleep, high pressure situations. And even if you were sleeping well, suddenly you find yourself in a season of insomnia. What is this connection with exercise and sleep? How does it improve sleep? You even go into like exercising at certain times of day and how that changes things. Yeah. Yeah. So in addition to the benefits of exercise on mood, reducing anxiety, improving mood, which will help combat some of the, you know, that insomnia symptoms that we get when we're anxious or tense or have a deadline at work. Exercise actually helps increase some natural sleep aids within the body. So one of them is adenosine, which it's a really cool mechanism here, actually. So um, ATP is the body, the cellular currency of energy, and we break down ATP to get energy to do work, mental work, physical work, all the same. They all use ATP. And when ATP is broken down, it produces this compound called adenosine. And adenosine, as it builds up, it naturally builds up throughout the day. And when it gets to a certain threshold, it triggers sleep. So it interacts with receptors within the brain and triggers sleep. And we can actually build up more adenosine by exercising. So this is one way that it contributes to a natural sleep aid. So this will trigger sleep in that cool way where it's breaking down more ATP to produce more adenosine. That's one way. Another way is that it helps realign our circadian rhythms, so our biological rhythms. Sleep is so important that it has these two control systems. So adenosine is one that helps us fall asleep, triggers sleep. But the circadian rhythm, the biological rhythm is another. And this can get out of sync pretty easily, especially in modern life with, you know, our bright phones and bright computers that we might be on into the wee hours of the night because we've got that deadline 
the bright light cause shifts in our circadian rhythm to be later, almost like a daylight saving shift, you know, but through these electronics and we can use exercise to actually shift things back. And so that's when I talk about the different timing of exercise throughout the day. You can actually counteract shift later in the night by exercising first thing in the morning, for example, and that helps to realign your brain time almost as good as the sun. There's been a study that compared the effects of the sun. So the sun is probably the greatest like realignment. We call them Zeitgerbers. So the, the, <laughs> the, the, the sign over <laughs> funny word. The sun is one of the strongest cues, but when researchers have done this, like this wild experiment where they bring people into the lab, they give them these ultra short sleep-wake cycles. So it's like sleep for an hour, wake up for two, sleep for an hour, wake up for two. They do this for three days straight. And then they examine the effects of sunlight and exercise on helping to shape the circadian rhythm. And they find that obviously sun is the best, but exercise is quite close. And when you combine the two together, you get this additive benefit. So if you've been staying up late at night, you know, working into the midnight hours, maybe you need to realign your time by exercising out in the sun first thing in the morning. So that's probably a good tip for those listening. Well, it also makes me think of those times of the year seasonally when the sun is barely out and our seasonal effectiveness disorder kicks in because it's not regulating our our waking and sleeping as much because it's just not up as much. Yeah. And those are the times where I've found that plowing through and even brute forcing it to a certain extent where I just make myself get into the groove of going to the gym if possible. Or, I mean, I even did it where during COVID, I grabbed a recumbent bike and had it downstairs in front of my giant TV. And it was like, no, you know what? As a reward, you can get up and you can watch a movie, but you have to sit and pedal while you're doing it. Yeah. And even just more incidental movements, like walking to the store or parking away from the door of the store, you know, so that you're, you're adding in a few more steps every day, especially in the wintertime when we don't have as much exposure to the sun. It is really important to be moving outside, bundling up and moving outside if you can, because Vitamin D actually is a precursor for serotonin. It's needed to produce serotonin, which can cause some of those seasonal affective disorders if we're not getting enough. Yeah. So that's why I've definitely found that especially, well, one for mood, two for sleep, three for just mental well-being, that seasonality of things. This is where exercise really becomes a definitive piece in the toolbox during those Mm -hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but of course, there's additional barriers to working. I mean, right yes. now it's so beautiful and sunny and warm. It's easy to get out and, you know, everybody wants to go for a walk. <laughs> but in the winter, I mean, I'm up in Canada. It gets really cold up here and there's snowy and icy. And that's when you really need to have a better plan. You know, you need to have a plan in place and you need to be prioritizing this, like almost to the point where you're like, if I don't do this movement, I'm not going to be well at work. I'm not going to be well for my family, you know, or be able to fully engage with life in the way that I want to. And so that for me, exercise has just become that priority because I know without it, like I'm not well. And so 
I carve out time within the morning every day to be active and it just needs to be a priority in your life, right? Yeah. And I think that's the key for me. And I think that's where my failing at continual movement has come from is I just know that there are certain seasons where, you know, whether it's weather-based or it's schedule-based, two different seasonalities there. In other words, I fail because I don't look far enough in advance and start to say, hey, the new chapter is coming. The new season is coming. You need to start making the shift now or the thinking through of what that is going to mean and going back to what has worked during that season in the past mm-hmm. and just kind of having those, you know, shifts ready to switch the tracks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to kind of anticipate the barriers that will be in place as they change. And and yeah, I think that's what makes it particularly difficult for new exercisers, right? So like maybe they you've picked up a new activity now that's working really well in the summer months, but come the fall, come the winter, it's not really working that well and it becomes more difficult. So having this plan, having, you know, this knowledge that things will change, it's not always going to be easy and having sort of workarounds in place so that you don't get discouraged because it's so important for your whole whole being to be active on a consistent basis. Well, and even when it comes to focus and creativity, you mentioned that mixing up the exercise types can train our brains to be more creative. And it also, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that that helps me too. I think that's one of the things I like about the summer is because it's so nice out and you can do so many different things outside and still have a fallback of being able to use something inside at a gym or at home that, you know, say somebody's bored with their <laughs> their routine, their regular way of doing things. And then, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to join my friend for yoga or, hey, I'm going to mm-hmm. call that other person up and say, hey, let's go on a bike ride or or go with your family or or just get the regular walking of the dog in kind of a thing and just break it up. I have found that that helps me and especially helps when, you know, it feels like you're in a rut exercise wise. Yeah. So this is such a cool part of the book and the effects of exercise is this effect of, yeah, essentially cross-training for creativity. So you're adding a mix of different activities into your routine so that you don't get stuck in that rut. And when we think about, let's say you're running on a treadmill for 30 minutes, this is like my least favorite form of exercise. I much prefer running outside because there's like, you know, pretty trees to look at. There's some people to see. There's a lot of variety in the terrain. But when you're running on the treadmill, you know, I mean, that's It can be easy to get it in, right? But you're just, you know, you're counting down the minutes sometimes. And it's so boring that you're like, oh, you know, you're really working out your, you know, self-regulation, your inhibitory control. You're not really working out your mental flexibility. And these two aspects of the brain are part of executive function. So we have inhibitory control, which is what we need to stay focused, but we also have this mental flexibility, which helps like give us access to our whole repertoire of knowledge and experience to be creative and think outside the box. And so when we're doing sort of really focused exercise, it does help improve our inhibitory control, but it doesn't really do that much for our creativity. And so having the mix of activities, switching in and out of activities, this is also why I recommend, you know, breaking up your sedentary time, your sitting time, your work time with 
short movement breaks because this context switch actually helps cue the brain to be more mentally flexible and can give you some new fresh ideas that you wouldn't have come up with if you just sat there and grinded it out. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the reasons why, again, it's the summertime and there's different things going on. After we're done talking right now, I'm going to take the dog out for a walk. And then later today, I'm also taking my son to go swimming. And swimming is just less of an option. It doesn't feel as good to get in a cold pool during cold cold months. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. I I've been over the past couple of years. This is part of the story in the book. I was training for this Ironman, <laughs> which required that I swim throughout the winter, and I yeah, not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, and other people they're they're probably listening in right now, and they're saying. You know, I don't really have that problem. I could do the same exercise over and over and over, specifically like, for example, runners. And you address this in the book. They talk, you know, about a runner's high. I'm curious, mm-hmm. uh, you kind of break down that being actually somewhat of a myth to a certain extent, but also the connection between exercise and addiction. Yeah. So runner's high, I mean, it is a real thing that you can get, but it's a combination of different chemicals that get released during like a hard, long run. And so it's difficult to get, which is why a lot of people don't experience that they could be running for a long time and never experience it. But the two sort of neurochemicals involved, everybody knows about the endorphins. This is sort of, you know, the main neurochemical related to euphoria, that euphoria feeling. And endorphins are essentially the body's pain reliever, like natural pain reliever, kind of like works a lot like morphine, but is produced by the body. So when we're running for long distances, what happens is the body produces endorphins to help ease the aching muscles and, you know, sore feet so that you can continue to run. But these endorphins are also released in the brain to help with that anguish, you know, the mental anguish of like enduring the hard effort. But there's also an endocannabinoids, which is the body's natural form of cannabis that are produced when we run. And these endocannabinoids report to the reward center in the brain and create this like neural incentive, which often leads to feelings of pleasure. And there's these super cool hedonic hotspots within the reward center where endorphins and endocannabinoids meet together and then create this like explosion of pleasure. So it's it's really cool. So th- there is a lot of pleasure that can be gained from movement. I think the problem is getting moving. Mm-hmm. And once we get moving, there's this natural neural, like, you know, th- it's incentivized to keep moving because it feels good. I mean, I don't think I've ever finished a workout and said, I wish I didn't do that. Like, I I usually feel really good. It makes me feel like calmer, more refreshed, more alert. Yeah. So the runner's high is a thing. It has these two chemicals that work with it. But and this is actually why exercise is so beneficial for addiction recovery and prevention, because it stimulates the reward system in a similar way as drugs of addiction, drugs of abuse do, even alcohol and smoking. So 
in teens, for example, you know, their brains are so curious, they're exploring, they need these like incentives that they get from like new experiences and this dopamine rush that they're seeking. And unfortunately, some will experiment with drugs, but those who are exercising can get that dopamine that they're seeking through movement and exercise. And so teens that are active are less likely to experiment with drugs, which is, I mean, really amazing. In fact, one study showed that it's better. So they did a, like a head-to-head comparison with teaching kids either like, you know, say no to drugs, you know, like this anti-drug campaign versus teaching them how to live a healthy lifestyle that involved being more physically active. And then they followed those teens through, you know, the next couple of years to see if they experimented with drugs. And the ones who were, you know, given that anti-drug campaign, the say no to drugs, were more likely to experiment with drugs than those who were in the the healthy lifestyle that included physical activity. And I mean, I, I think we've just been going about it the wrong way. When you tell a teen what not to do, they're more likely to want to do it, right? It piques their curiosity. But when you give them these other outlets to uh, stimulate the reward system and give the brain what it craves and needs with activity and new new experiences, then they're less likely to experiment with drugs. And similar when people are recovering from an addiction, and I know the past couple of years, a lot of people sought, escaped through drugs and alcohol. And unfortunately, these things are, are highly addictive because they increase dopamine within the brain to like supernatural levels. The problem is that the reward system starts to retract, like lock down effectively, because it was never designed to deal with that much dopamine. And so it, it contracts, it removes its receptors. The problem is this makes it more difficult to enjoy the simple things in life, close ties with friends and family, food, sex, all of those things lose their like luster when someone is addicted to a drug or or alcohol. And so when someone stops using, what happens is they're left with sort of this depleted reward system, which causes cravings and withdrawal symptoms can make it really difficult to to get sober. But exercising at that point is so beneficial because it helps reopen the reward system faster so that, you know, their their cravings are crushed with movement breaks and they can turn to movement and activity instead of the unhealthy behavior that they had been doing. The other amazing thing about exercising in the recovery to sobriety is that it helps you, you know, develop a new friend group. Like maybe you're going out with a run group or a, like a, a yoga club and you're meeting new people that become then your support network. Even if you don't have anything else in common with them, except that you like to do the same movement, it helps you to like rebuild, you know, your new social network. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have personal experience with this you share in the book about how you quit smoking due to biking so you have personal experience you know i'm professor in kinesiology and i'm like (laughs) anti-drug it's funny when you have these like past history (laughs) of unhealthy behavior but it i think you know it it does like i tried to quit smoking three times it was so hard and i would every time I tried quit smoking, I would gain like a ton of weight. You know, it was just like this really awful 
period of my life where I just hated smoking. It wasn't something I wanted my identity to be anymore, but it's just so hard to quit. And then, uh, yeah, it was the bike rides that really helped, you know, instead of when I was stressed turning for a cigarette, I went for a bike ride. And then the really amazing thing about moving was that, you know, if you slip up and have a cigarette and then try to run, like you just feel crappy. (laughs) You notice the effects more, more immediately. And you're like, ah, it's not worth it. You know, I'd rather run well than, you know have a drag of that cigarette <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that was like you know that's like an 80s thing <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well the and the other key piece is is depending you know regardless of what age you are those of us that are a little higher up might start to think about this especially if we have personal experience with it like i do with my grandfather and alzheimer's is that exercising can keep your brain younger how and why does this work Yeah, this is one of the best gifts exercise gives is it helps keep the brain healthy and sharper while we age. So our research shows that physical inactivity contributes to dementia risk as much as your genetics. So this is like a an important point. You can't change your genes, but you can change your lifestyle. And you don't have to change it that much. It's just like incorporating more movement into your life. And the cool thing that exercise does, like there's there's many different ways that it helps keep the brain young. But one of the ways is, I had mentioned this before, it increases the birth of brand new brain cells within the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is our memory center in the brain. And it's the region that's devastated by Alzheimer's disease. As we get older, naturally, we produce fewer brain cells, fewer new brain cells are born. But exercise can increase that amount throughout our lifestyle so that we have this reservoir of new brain cells to build new memories. And that helps keep our our memory sharper and keep dementia at bay. Other ways it improves it is by increasing blood brain flow and the vasculature of the brain so that more oxygenated blood flow can flow to the cells that need it. This is like the brain's fuel. And with that oxygenated blood flow, we can think clearer, we're sharper, we can react faster, we can process things faster, we're way more efficient. This is also the reason why it's important to break up sedentary time, because when we sit for really long periods of time, essentially like the brain gets starved of oxygenated blood flow. And so when even just short movement breaks are enough to restore that oxygenated blood, especially to the prefrontal cortex, which we need to really do that hard focused thinking. So I don't know about you, but I don't know how old you are, but I, I've started noticing declines, just, you know, subtle declines. I think especially when you're used to your brain working at such a high level, now that I'm like just past 40, I'm noticing like, you know, it's not as fast as it always is. But one thing I always look forward to is right after I exercise it's fast. You know, it's, it is as fast as it possibly can be. And so I, I turn to exercise when I, when I need that brain boost. Mm, Yeah. It makes me feel like essentially if I was going to say, Hey, let me paraphrase what you just said is, is that exercise helps your brain breathe. Yeah. Yeah. And, And it's almost like suffocating often enough without it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. 
<laughs> Good. So I might use that one. I feel, I feel validated. I feel validated and confirmed. <laughs> well, I, I really think that, you know, and, and again, the one other step here is even if somebody's had personal experience where they've felt the benefits of movement and how that affects their mind and their whole body, you know, their mind, their spirit, their their brain, their physical body, all these different things, all in one package, they themselves, they may have gotten off track. I think your book is a great place to jump back in on and reinforce and deepen. You know, we've listed off all these different benefits. It might be one or two that are really your priority. So I'd love for people to jump in on that. What's the best place for people to find out more about your research, what you're doing, the NeuroFit Lab as well, and obviously to go find out more about the book and grab a copy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the book's available. The book's called Move the Body, Heal the Mind. It's available anywhere books are sold. Another thing to maybe just mention about the book, it even has workout programs at the end of each chapter to help you get back on track. So I think that can be kind of a fun way to mix up the activity or to get some inspiration for movement. You can find me on Instagram. I'm doctor.jenniferheiss, H-E-I-S said. I'm on Twitter at Jennifer Heiss. And yes, my NeuroFit Lab. So neurofitlab.com or jenniferheiss.com. So I'm all over the place. (laughs) Come check me out. We do a lot of public outreach. So we try to translate the research we're doing into the public domain through toolkits or infographics to help people understand the research better. That's really one of the main missions of both the book and of my online presence. So Perfect. I will make sure to link up to all of those things in the show notes for this episode so everybody can find them quickly and easily. And Jennifer, it's been great talking with you. I know that the book has already been doing a lot of good, and I know it's just going to keep doing more, and for me as well, specifically. Thanks for having me. Thanks for saying that. It's really, it means a lot. I'm so happy to hear it's resonating with people. Part of the uh, book, why it's so special for me, it's not just about the research, but I tell my personal story quite candidly. And so I think that part, especially for people who've kind of lost their motivation, I think that part in particular, well, at least from the feedback I've gotten has been really, really motivating for people. Yeah, definitely. It's not just here's a bunch of research and case studies and here it is, you know, pulled together in a a certain order. No, this is lived experience and and expressed through, you know, personal connection. So yeah, Yeah. I can definitely see that. And, And I think that's probably why this is definitely more of a, not just a kick in the butt, but a motivator, like an ongoing motivator. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Jennifer Heise. I really enjoyed talking with her about her book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, Overcome Anxiety, Depression, and Dementia, and Improve Focus, Creativity, and Sleep. This is an incredibly beneficial conversation to have had, I think, for a lot of people, including myself. I regularly come back around to the physical aspect of productivity when it comes to improved health and just movement. If you found this podcast helpful, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing it with somebody that it will also help by hitting the share button in your podcast player app of choice or over at the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. 
You can also find short cast episodes of this podcast on Blinkist. Those are seven to ten minute versions of these episodes. You can get that by going to beyondthetodolist.com slash Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Thanks again for sharing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode.